chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I think we have them on the screen. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning, everyone. Well, <clears throat> let me just say, uh, we're still in Epiphany, by the way. I wonder if you know that. We're still in Epiphany, Epiphany 2, second week, where Jesus is revealing himself. We're having uh, the revelation of Christ into the world. And uh, we'll be in Epiphany for a couple more weeks. But um, today's reading is about a wedding, <clears throat> and so... I just want to tell you that actually there's quite a few things that can go wrong at weddings, uh, but not many of them are that serious that it would affect the couple, the future of the couple that's getting married. I just recall that uh, one of my colleagues in Japan, he was presiding over a wedding there, and the couple at that particular wedding, they decided that they would place a ring pillow on their dog tied around their tummy, it would be on his back, and the rings would be on the pillow. The dog would stand at the entrance to the chapel, and at the appropriate moment, on cue, the dog would trot up the aisle and present the rings to the couple. Yeah, exactly. And as Bill would say, sounds good in theory. Well, actually, it went well, perfectly well through the... the uh, through the rehearsal. But come the day of the wedding, the dog sat at the entrance, refused to cross the, uh, the threshold into the chapel, and it caused all sorts of fuss and commotion, and people went, come on, come on, come on. Uh, it was a little bit humorous, but nothing too serious. 
Other things, though, can be a little bit more serious. When I, for example, uh, first became a wedding celebrant in Japan, the person that employed me sat down and he said, now, I've got to talk to you about this role and what's entailed. He said, I don't want to scare you, but there are a couple of things that you really need to know. The first is this. You need to be very careful how you handle the rings. If you mishandle the rings or happen to drop it, you could be in serious trouble. Or if you get the names of the bride or the groom wrong, you could be fined up to the equivalent of a year's worth of salary, removed from being a celebrant, and it could be a black mark against the company that employed me. Quite serious, but still, this would not affect the future of the couple that falls on the celebrant. Well, in today's reading, Jesus finds himself at a wedding at which there is an oversight in hospitality. Not a big deal, you might think. But in fact, this oversight is so serious that it is an irreparable insult to the guests. It's an insult that brings shame on the families of the couple and it's dishonoring to the bride and the groom. But Jesus' miracle on this occasion, he takes this occasion potentially full of shame and dishonor, and he transforms it into an occasion of honor and joy. His miracle and the setting of the miracle point us to who Jesus is, and it calls us to faith, to belief in him. Well, let's pray before we explore the passage in front of us. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We pray that your word would be as manna from heaven to us today. Strengthen us for the walk in the wilderness of this world and for the journey that is ahead of us. Sustain us, guide us, and lead us. May your word be that light to our path. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so let's dive into uh, the passage with John chapter 2. And let's look at this celebratory moment, this occasion, this wedding. Verse 1, John writes, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So one of the things about Jesus that you'll find is that Throughout his ministry, he would ordinarily be found in very ordinary places. He would be found among ordinary folk, and he would be found doing very ordinary things. And this occasion is one of those times. It just happens to be a wedding celebration. And John says this wedding is on the third day. Now, the third day is referring to 
earlier in John's gospel where Jesus encountered Nathanael. Three days from his meeting with Nathanael, who became a disciple. And it's about one week then into Jesus' public ministry. And this wedding, it takes place in Cana of Galilee, which also just happens to be Nathanael's hometown. It's about six kilometers from Nazareth, or about a half a day's walk from Capernaum. So that made it a town that was close enough to be a neighbor of these other two places, close enough, far enough away to be its own little distinct town, but close enough that people from the villages would know one another. And so we are told that Jesus' mother was present at the wedding, and she probably knew the hosts well, and that she had some responsibility in this wedding, as we'll find as we go through. Jesus was also there with his disciples. Exactly how many were there with him, we don't know, but we do know at least that five were there. Uh, prior in chapter 1, uh, Jesus had called Andrew and Simon Peter, Philip, uh, Nathaniel, and also John, the writer of this gospel. So John, who wrote this story, was present. He's an eyewitness to it. Uh, and some scholars have actually speculated that one of the reasons that the party ran short of wine at this critical moment was because Jesus unexpectedly turned up with his disciples and burdened the occasion uh, with his presence and their presence. However, they didn't read the beginning of the story, did they? They didn't read the first verse where it says, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. Oh, they were invited. So we can just forget that idea. However, Jesus was probably very well known, like they didn't gate crash, that's quite right. They were invitees, and they brought their RSVPs. And so, like Mary, uh, Jesus and his disciples were probably well-known to the family. If Mary was well-known, it's likely her family was also well-known. Probably a case of, oh, tell Jesus to come along and bring his friends. Well, as for weddings themselves, they were significant community events. They were, in fact, one of the chief events in ancient times. Being a celebratory occasion, and in fact a very serious one, uh, public announcements would be made in advance, the entire village would know about it, and it would have been well publicized. A lot of people would have been aware of it. And of course, preparations were made well in advance, and process went something like this. About a year beforehand, the bride and the groom-to-be would get together with the family in a public place. They would be betrothed in a public setting. Announcement of the wedding would be made. Uh, they would be enter into a legal uh, contract, a legally binding contract, in the presence of witnesses. And this contract was that strong, it could only be broken by divorce which was really a social taboo. But, and even though the couple were technically not married, the terms husband and wife would be used of them from that point on. And until, if there was a death of one or the other 
in that period leading up to the wedding, it actually made the surviving spouse a widow or a widower. So it was pretty much a done deal. And that was from the betrothal. It's nothing at all alike our idea of an engagement. It's much more binding. And so uh, further preparations had to be made as well. Uh, one of the things was that the bridegroom had to prepare a place for his uh, bride. And so he would spend that year building and constructing a home where they could both live. And usually it was a place, a room that was added to the parents' house. And then finally, when it came time for the wedding, the groom would gather his friends together, usually in the evening. They'd lead a procession to the bride's house, gather her up, and proceed back to the uh, groom's house where a feast was prepared. And there, the father of the bride would write up a contract, blessings would be made, an announcement of the marriage, and the celebrations would begin. And they would go on for up to a week. Who's had a week of celebrations in their wedding or marriage? I don't know, but it sounds like fun. And it would require a lot of wine. Anyway, all going well, the celebrations would go on for a week, but not all was going well. In fact, a colossal mistake with serious social consequences was about to reveal itself. There had been an oversight in the provision of hospitality. We read from verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So here we see the extent of Mary's involvement at the wedding. She's aware that there's no wine. She's aware that this is a problem. And she's also telling the servants what to do. This tells her that she had some part in managing the hospitality for the occasion. And that there is no wine, that the wine is gone, is a huge problem. As I mentioned earlier, it's a colossal insult to the guests. And hospitality in the culture was so important that to deny guests the staple of wine at the wedding amounted to stating your regret at ever having invited them. You might as well have got up in the middle of the ceremony and said, right, speech time. Get out, all of you. I wish I'd never invited you. How would you ever live it down, especially in such a small village with little you know, travel, like, people can escape. Here in our day, trouble happens, go somewhere else. But it's not such the case, really, for them. 
Such a thing would bring shame on the family and dishonor the bride and groom. So I can imagine Mary's frustration, and you can probably imagine with me, as she realizes there's no wine left. The guests' cups are getting low. There's an uneasy atmosphere. You know that. You've been to a restaurant, and you've gone, where's my desserts coming? Did they forget? That sort of thing. But it's not just you. It's everywhere. Everybody's going, my wine pretty sure I, I asked for more wine. There's an uneasy atmosphere. So what to do? What's Mary going to do? Where is she going to get wine? Where is she going to get help? Since her husband Joseph had passed, she couldn't disturb the bride and groom. Hey, there's no wine. What am I going to do? She couldn't go to the master of the banquet and cause a fuss. What would she do? Well, she did what she would naturally do when she needed help. Joseph had probably long passed by now, so she turned to her eldest son, Jesus. They have no more wine. That's a request, a plea for help in the form of a statement. Surely Jesus would know what to do. Did she expect a miracle? I don't know. But Jesus was the person that she turned to. But Jesus' response to Mary is really unexpected. Oh, woman, why do you involve me? Woman? Not mother? Woman? And why do you involve me? Or what has this got to do with us in common? Why should I be concerned about what you're concerned about? It sounds cold and uncaring, dismissive. But actually, it's not quite so. At least to our Western ears. Is that any way to speak to your mother? I think that's what I would get back if I spoke to my mother that way. Woman? I don't think I'd get past that. <laughs> uh, Jesus is indifferent to Mary's request, but he's not rude. The term woman actually was an appropriate way to address a married lady, something akin to Mrs. or maybe ma'am in the English language. And maybe you'll remember Jesus uses this term actually when he is speaking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he, he, he addresses her as woman. And also when the teachers of the law and the Pharisees drag the woman accused of adultery before him, he addresses her that way, woman, where are your accusers? And as he hang on the cross, Mary was there in front of him and the disciple whom he loved, John. He looked at Mary and he said, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he said, Here is your mother. I, I really love the compassion in Jesus. 
But still, you might say, okay, that's appropriate usage and all that. But still, it's not mother. Is that a way to talk to your mother? So what's going on here? Well, the reason is made clear in Jesus' next statement when he says, my time has not yet come. So Jesus is saying now that his life is governed by a greater mission. My time, or some translations say my hour, refers to his substitutionary death by crucifixion. He's looking forward to the plan that God has for him. He's no longer under Mary's authority, but he's ordering his life, his decisions by the timetable laid out for him by the Father. And he makes this clearer in John chapter 5, where he says more explicitly, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. So Jesus is effectively drawing a line under their relationship as mother and son. Now she is relating to him as the Son of God. The time of the mother-son relationship has passed. She has no basis upon which to impose expectations or pressure on him. He will be about his father's business. So what of Mary's quandary? What of her request? Now just pause here because when I read over my manuscript uh, this morning, God really pressed this on me that some of you may feel just like Mary that you have a problem that is beyond your ability to resolve. You may not be ultimately responsible but you may be involved and you feel the weight of that. And you've been praying and you've been asking and you've been pleading with God help me, and you feel there's been no response, indifference. And I think God just wants to encourage you to pay attention to Mary's response here. Not to give up hope. So what of Mary's request? They've run out of wine. Jesus has told her, what is it to you and to me? Well, true to her nature, she acquiesces. She humbles herself. She acknowledges what Jesus is saying, and she lets go of any attempt to control or have any control over the outcome. But not without expectation. You see, she doesn't address Jesus any longer. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't plead with him. She doesn't draw out long reasons why he should get involved. He just, she just turns to the servants expectantly and says to them, do whatever he tells you. And so the stage is set. The ball is in Jesus' court now. What will he do? 
So we've seen a celebratory moment. It's been disrupted by this critical mistake. And now there's a charitable, charitable miracle that's about to take place that will transform this occasion, which could be one of dishonor, and tra translate it into an occasion of honor. So let's read from verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons, or 80 to 120 liters. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the Jews were almost very, very fanatical about washing. Moses had prescribed some laws around ceremonial washing, but... The Jews of the particular Jesus' day had taken it to a whole new level. If a little bit of washing was good, then a lot of washing must be gooder. And so these stone jars contained water that the guests to the wedding would have used, probably stood outside the wedding venue, and they would have washed their hands and gone through ceremony washing as they entered and as they left and as they sat down to eat and drink. Now, as we mentioned, each one of these stone jars held something in the uh, magnitude of 80 to 120 liters of water, which translates, by the way, to something like 600 to 900 standard bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. Uh, it's an abundant amount of wine, and it's a sufficient for many days of celebration. But Jesus sees these stone jars and he tells the servants, fill the jars with water, and as they do, they fill them to the brim. Now that little detail is significant because in the day, the way that wine was used was mainly to purify water. And so it was diluted at about, uh, let's see, one part to three or one part to ten, depending on the occasion. I'd imagine one part to three would be for much more of a leisurely and pleasurable use, and one part to ten probably to purify water. So by filling these jars to the brim, it leaves no room for mistaking what happens next. There could be no addition of wine to the water that somebody could say, oh yeah, well Jesus, just, you know, somebody just added wine into the water, you know, it's diluted down to this one part to ten level. Cannot happen. Filled to the brim. And so Jesus says, draw some of that water out, take it to the master of the banquet. Now this is one single uninterrupted sequence of action. Fill the jars, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. So they do. They, too, they bring water to the master of the banquet that they're drawn from the jars, and he drinks it. Wine. Sometimes people ask, when did it turn into wine? Was it at the filling? 
of the jars? No, because the servants drew water from the jars. Somewhere between, somewhere between drawing the water and touching the lips of the master of the banquet, wine. Now, usually custom dictated that the cheaper wine, uh, the best wine be served first. Uh, reason very obviously is because that's when guests can appreciate it. They can taste the flavors. But the lesser wine was brought out later, and that's because the senses are more dulled and flavors and things don't matter quite so much. But somewhere between taste, drawing water and tasting that wine... Jesus, by simple force of will, transforms water into exquisite wine. Now, the master of the banquet is completely unaware that a miracle has taken place. Yet, this is important, he confirms it in his praise of the groom. Right? He's a disinterested party in the matter of whether or not a miracle has taken place. That doesn't matter to him. All he knows is that he has wine in his goblet. He's got no, nothing invested in trying to promote or prop up Jesus in some way. But he announces, he heaps praise on, on the bridegroom. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. And so it appeared to the master of the banquet that the bridegroom had served up great wine from the start, but even more exquisite wine later. And so this miracle transformed transforms an occasion that was destined for dishonor into an occasion of honor and joy. Shame is gone, dishonor is gone, disrespect is gone, insult is gone, the celebration continues, honor on the bridegroom and bride. And as far as the miracle itself goes, it's quite understated there's no pizzazz around it. Jesus doesn't seek an audience. He's not seeking notoriety. He's not even looking for credit for the miracle. He just seems to be content that honor falls to the bride and the groom. And that brings us to John's final analysis of what the events mean. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, the, Jesus, the disciples had followed Jesus in the belief that he was God's chosen one, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And his miracle, this miracle, was a sign that gave them a window into who he was. See, signs that Jesus did reveal his character, his nature, his power, his glory. And by them, the disciples' decision to follow him had been vindicated. It establishes faith. Miracles establish faith. 
They support faith. So what can we take away from this passage? What can we learn from it? There's three basic ideas that I want to put forth to you. The first one is this, that Jesus dignifies marriage in his presence at the wedding by being present at the wedding and by blessing the celebration of marriage by way of his miracle. So our popular culture, it's no secret that our popular culture degrades marriage. It reduces marriage to mere sentimentality in many cases. Just feelings of love, a paper promise to be torn up and discarded at the first signs of dissatisfaction. Or it popularizes the idea of living together. It tells, tells us all we should celebrate, promote, bless the value of same-sex unions. Our churches, some of our churches tell us this too, but that's popular culture. It's not marriage. None of it is ordained by God. None of it is prescribed by him. None of it is blessed by him. It's popular, but it's a lie. On the other hand, Jesus dignifies marriage of a man and a woman by his presence at this wedding. The Catholic Church actually uses this passage to establish uh, its doctrine of marriage as a sacrament. That's how seriously they view this particular passage. Jesus dignifies Christian marriage, marriage between a man and a woman. And he blesses the celebration of marriage by the provision of wine when it was most needed, a need that was maybe felt but not yet maybe even realized or known by the guests. And not only that, the wine he provided was abundant, it was of the highest quality, the very best. It tells you something about the way Jesus regarded marriage. We need to celebrate marriage to bless it because Jesus did. We need to hold it up as a desirable way of life. We need to model Christian marriage, those of us who are married. Model it to those who hope to marry, who are planning to marry, and who are newly married. So secondly, Jesus ordered his life by the overarching purposes of his father and not by the demands of those around him or of his environment. So some of the foundational virtues of Jesus' life were humility, obedience, and trust. But he was also observant and teachable. He saw what the Father was doing, and he did it in the same way. And I would ask you, do you want to be the victim of circumstance or of your environment? Do you want to be at the mercy of other people's demands, or do you want to do and see what the Father is doing and do it in the same way? And I want, you to, I want to encourage you just to pray with me now. If we want to know what the Father is doing, what the Father is about, we can read it in his word. 
But what is he doing here among us? We need to talk to him. So pray with me now, if you would. A very short prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Please show us what you are doing here in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. And show us how we can be a part of it and how to do it as you would do it. Amen. So let's be like Mary. Mary's example shows us how to live. Let go of control of the outcome. Trust God, but with expectation that he's going to work. And respond to him when he speaks, as the servants did, showing faith by obedience. And the third lesson I think that we can take from this is about Jesus' transformation of water to wine. It's an indication or presentation of his ability to transform our lives. So I'd ask you today, how are you doing? Because there's a lot of confusion in the world right now. Mental health is at an all-time low, suicide at an all-time high, and even without that, there's still the matter and the issue of sin that cripples people's lives. Secrets, fear, shame, guilt. Jesus can transform it for you. His transformation of water to wine is nothing compared to his ability to change your life. He took plain, ordinary water and turned it into exquisite wine. So repent. Let go of your beloved sin. Believe in his name. And here's what he will do for you. He'll take your dead spirit and breathe life into it, resurrection life. He'll take a heart of stone and he'll replace it with a heart of flesh. He'll transform a rebellious nature and give you a new nature, one that loves what is good, one that loves what is righteous, one that loves what God loves and hates what he hates. And above all, there's a place for you in eternity. That's his invitation to you in this story. A miracle revealing who he is, what he's about, and an invitation to believe in his name and believing in his name, having eternal life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we just come before you at this time and we give thanks for your abundant blessings upon us as your children. In our trouble, when we cry out, you make provision.
You show us grace in our disgrace. You lift us up out of troubled waters, out of miry clay, and you put our feet on solid ground. You've shown us the way, Father, in your blessing of marriage. And today, we pray that you would bless all those who are married, all those who desire to be married, all those planning to be married, and those newly married. We pray that they would know the provision and abundance of your grace, even as you provided abundance at this wedding. Lord, lead us and show us what you are doing and show us how to do it, how to be a part of it in a way that you would do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.